Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Just so people know, we are recording these episodes in advance, so if there's any news that we're not reacting to, it's because we recorded it like two weeks ago. Derek and I, as of this recording, are going to be out of town for about, you know, a week and a half each, so... We are recording this episode about two days after last week's episode. Although I should say, I've tried looking on TikTok for Latter-day Saint content, and I really can't find much at all. I find a lot of Exmos, but I haven't found the Mos. The last time I was on TikTok, I was just trying to learn a new dance craze to do with my family (laughs) when, you know, I link up with them in a couple of days. So... I know nothing about Mormon TikTok. Not this week, anyway. Before we get into the content for this week, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Doctrine and Covenants section 88 this week. This is pretty much the section that uh, finally got the saints to build a temple. Um, it links, it makes a couple of links to uh, section 84 as well in that they are both uh, very, I suppose, temple or temple covenant heavy sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, and uh, the most we have in terms of where this section came from is basically the uh, brethren got together assembled in missouri decided to get in the translating room and joseph was like i'm going to teach you guys how to receive revelation what does he have them do he like has them pray and turn and stuff and ask for a very specific blessing i think to become of uh, one heart and one mind and to have the lord's will concerning the upbuilding of zion revealed to them and then that's kind of where this revelation came from it took them two days to get the entirety of this revelation and it is a long one it's like 120 some verses so we have quite a bit of content in here quite a bit of uh beautiful um you know revelation on light on law on the temple on the second coming on the gospel there's just there's just a lot in here uh stuff that rain that ranges from uh like the theoretically, the theoretical and cosmological, I've heard somebody say, to the very practical. This is what uh, Bushman said. Were you going to quote this? It might be the same thing. It might be the same quote. I just want to read this uh, Bushman quote that uh, describes section 88. Uh, he says, it runs from the cosmological to the practical, from a description of angels blowing their trumpets to instructions for starting a school. The revelation offers sketches of the law sketches of the order of heaven rather reprises the three degrees of glory delivers a discourse on divine law offers a summary on the meta history of the end of times i don't actually know what that is meta history i didn't look it up i should have uh and then and it brings all to bear on what the saints should do now so i think that's a pretty succinct summary of what we are going to be getting to in section 88 a lot of stuff that's very out there but also a lot of stuff that's very practical and like i said what's in this revelation ultimately spurs the saints to uh, finally build the temple uh what do you got from bushman well that's exactly what i was gonna uh read okay cool did you want to expound on anything um well let me just go back a few lines in bushman since he stole my my bad my bad um Here's what Bushman says. This is on page 206 of Rough Stone Rolling. It talks about the uh, the setting, and here's what Bushman says. The minutes, this is the recorded minutes of the this uh, conference. The minutes report that the revelation not being finished, the conference adjourned till tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock a.m. The next day, Joseph proceeded to receive the residue of the above revelation. When he mailed it to William Phillips in Missouri, Joseph called it, the olive leaf which we have plucked from the tree of paradise. Like other revelations, the olive leaf moves from subject to subject. Nothing in 19th century literature resembles it. The writings of Swedenborg come closest, but they were much less concerned with the millenarian events. And then it continues with the part that you said. Mm -hmm. And I just think, just from a literary standpoint, this 
there's something special about this. There's a method into uh, connecting the form and the content because a lot of people want to extract the content from the form and think, well, the form doesn't matter. But here you've got this wild, tumbling kaleidoscope of different things pieced together. And I think you can't separate the content from the impact that that kind of form gives on you. I'm sure you felt something different reading this section than some of the other sections, yeah, right? Yeah, man. There's just, like I said, there's so much going on in here, and there's so much in terms of, uh, gosh, I know what the word means, but I still struggle to say it. Eschatological stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just that That's probably the biggest connection I drew between 88 and 84 in terms right. of like the way this revelation made me feel. Why are these all in the same section was what I wanted to know. Okay. I want to talk, connect it back with Jürgen Moltmann. We talked about him whenever we talked about him several weeks, <laughs> months ago. I don't know. Uh-huh. But he's the one that says your eschatology isn't separate from your contemporary concerns. That is, they're linked, at least in the New Testament and within Christian theology, they should be linked. And yeah. however you feel about where things are going changes your priorities and values today and what you're, what you're mm-hmm. doing with it today. And I think that's exactly yeah. what's going on here is, yes, you've got these grand visions of something really big, mm-hmm. but then it talks about we're going to open up a school, mm-hmm. right? And I think there is a connection there, and we'll yeah. get into that. Bushman actually makes that uh, makes that observation, right? That you know we simultaneously get all this stuff that is so out there, but the Lord also connects it to what we got to do today. So yes, I want to connect that with verse three. Here's what it says: Wherefore I now send upon you another Comforter, even upon you, my friends, that it may abide in your hearts even the Holy Spirit of promise, which other comforter is the same that I promised unto my disciples, as is recorded in the testimony of John. So this is in uh, the Gospel of John, chapters 15 and 16, uh, in the farewell discourse. Mm -hmm. Now, the word comforter is funny because we don't use that in English except to talk about the thing that's on your bed. Like, we don't talk about uh, someone being a comforter, really. Right, um, and it and the Greek word parakletos means a, someone who encourages or exhorts or comforts or, um, or or an advocate as well, someone who's who's standing alongside to assist you. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about. Oh, I love what Zandra Vrains says about the comforter because I'm sure you've heard this. Many people will say in the church, someone will say something challenging or. Uh, new or different or something that holds people accountable and someone will say oh no I, the spirit left the room right oh, as gosh. soon as they get uncomfortable they say oh no I can feel the spirit leaving which I think is really condescending and manipulative. manipulative yeah, yeah right to shut down someone else's passionate uh, witness of the truth because it made and you know it's I hate to say it's white people that do that but yeah that's the type of thing that if <laughs> someone uh speaks out for racial justice some white person could very easily say oh no i feel so uncomfortable that is a signal that the spirit is gone mm-hmm. now zandra has it really brilliant uh puts it in a really brilliant manner because the comforter comes when you are uncomfortable right that's mm-hmm. when the comforter comes so when you are comforted or when you are uncomfortable that's when the spirit comes and so this instead of saying the spirit leaves when someone says something uncomfortable, that's a place for the spirit to come. And her point is that if you just leave the room because you're uncomfortable, you're trying to do, you're trying to do the Holy Spirit's job for him. Yeah. Let me just also go ahead and uh, point out that uh, when Christ promised the comforter, it was at a time of what, what seemed to be confusion and worry for the apostles. At least three of them voiced some kind of uh, uh, concern at Jesus' departure. So there is something to say for the validity of the feelings of discomfort some folks will likely feel um, when, when their worldview or ideas at church are challenged by these unfamiliar ideas uh, that validate the marginalized. The apostles were scared. 
and confused and uncomfortable with what Jesus was saying. And it's why Jesus promised the comforter. And look at Jesus's words later in uh, John chapter 14, when he actually promises the comforter, when he's having this conversation. And, uh, you know, look at Jesus's words later in John chapter 14, when he's having these conversations with his apostles. Think about Xander's words when Jesus is talking here. He says, uh, peace I leave with you and my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Jesus is uh, acknowledging that the peace that is coming their way will either be uh, different from the peace the world gives, or it's going to come in a different way. Uh, the word as could also mean either, but I'm going to lean toward uh, the way meaning, the the way meaning. So read, read that way. It says, my peace I give unto you, not the way the world giveth, give I unto you. And then he follows that up with, don't be troubled or afraid. Jesus knows that his peace may not come in the most comfortable ways or traditional ways. And he's warning his apostles of that and perhaps warning us as well, lest we stray from the journey that will bring us true uh, comfort, as uh, Zandra was saying. It's uh, always relevant because all this stuff about critical race theory, woo. making white people uncomfortable. First of yeah. all, it's not even, they're not even characterizing it correctly. Nah. They're making it out to be this straw man thing mm -hmm. and it's they're not even attacking actual critical race theory but two right, right. just even white fragility leads white folks to just be so uncomfortable talking about race and i get it i'm sometimes i'm uncomfortable too but then i just push through it and realize it's not my place to artificially get out of the problem mm -hmm. while we're talking about the comforter it just reminded me of something very interesting and there's a sense in which you could see the uh, spirit as transgender at least gender non-conforming or fluid or some way and that's okay. because of the gendered nature of hebrew greek and latin so in hebrew the word for spirit is ruach um, like Ruach Elohim is the spirit of God. This is the spirit that hovers over the waters. And Ruach in Hebrew is feminine in gender. Gets feminine adjectives and feminine verbs. By the way, verbs in Hebrew match their subjects in gender. Okay. Uh, in Greek, Topneuma, the spirit, is neuter in gender. And then in Latin, Spiritus is masculine in gender so you can see the same thing in different languages is in different genders so that's why we could probably use whatever pronouns make sense at the time when we are talking about the spirit that is interesting i knew that we deliberately tried to steer people toward uh using uh male pronouns for the spirit uh in the church but mm -hmm. like this uh gives us one more thing in terms of like looking at the Greek, looking at the Hebrew, right. uh, you know, languages closer to, you know, the original text that we could also further use to, I suppose, validate mm -hmm. genders other than male, uh, which is so badly needed in the church. So thank you for bringing that out. Yeah. Well, I want to move on and just say one quick thing about verse 22. It says, for he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. And this gives us some indications of, of what it means by kingdom and what it means by glory. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, when they think of the word kingdom, they think about a geographic area, right? Like the kingdom of, like the United Kingdom or the kingdom of Norway, you've got this the spot and you're you're either in in that land or you're not but really basileia in greek is the reigning activity of a monarch it's their administration it's not the the jurisdiction over which they preside so much as their actual reigning itself so that is the reign of god that you know all these kingdom of heaven or kingdom of god stuff in the gospels but what that means is if you see the kingdom as reigning activity in a person's life or in a community, there's a sense in which, let me just back up and say it this way. A lot okay. of people think that they won't be in the same place. Like I won't be with grandma or I won't be with my son or I won't be, but that's not what it means. Like different people can be operating on different kingdoms just like here on earth. Like we who are Christians are in a different kingdom than everyone else. We're called to live a different life. We have a different covenant. We are reigned over. Mm -hmm. differently 
because our king is the king of the universe. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we see each other, but we're living a different law. And I think something must be similar uh, when we talk about the three kingdoms is we might be, quote, all together, right? We all see each other, mm-hmm. but we're living with different responsibilities. And I think that is uh, where I'm going with glory because a lot of things about glory is happiness. I don't think the degrees of glory are degrees of happiness. They're actually degrees of responsibility. Okay. And if you give someone responsibilities that they're not prepared for, they do not consent to, that doesn't make them happy, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you said, hey, Derek, you're gonna be the CEO of Walmart tomorrow. I'm like, no, I don't I don't want to do that. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I literally, mm-hmm. that would ruin my life, right? Mm-hmm. I might get a lot of money. I don't want money. <laughs> I want to chill with my friends and study theology. I don't want to do all this business. <laughs> but my point is, if you dump on me some immense, vers- like if you made me president of the US, I would not be happy. If you made me, like I, So my point is that you're gonna have, in this eschatology, a very beautiful individualized plan of salvation where everyone is living into what they're prepared for. Mm -hmm. And rather than threatening people, oh no, you're not gonna make it to the celestial kingdom, it's like, whatever, wherever you are is going to be appropriate for your preparedness and development. And it doesn't mean like, oh, you're not gonna see people. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what DNC 32 actually does say? What yeah, it is Yeah, 132. About? Yeah. Let's talk about that later. Cause talk I, about that later? Okay. Yeah. But basically, go home, read DNC 132 very carefully, and, and see what the promises actually are. Okay. I want to move on to verse 51 through 53. We have this interesting parable. So this comes after this grand vision of seeing all these uh, uh, heavenly lights, uh, um the sun, moon, stars, and then says these are kingdoms that God reigns over in some way. And then we've got this parable that likens these kingdoms to a man who has a field and has 12 different servants that go out into the field. And here's something very interesting. He doesn't go visit them all collectively. He visits them individually. He spends an hour with the first one and he promises them and schedules an appointed time, verse 52, and he said unto the first, go ye and labor in the field, and in the first hour I will come to you, and ye shall behold the joy of my countenance. And he said unto the second, go ye also into the field, and in the second hour I will visit you with the joy of my countenance. First of all, here we've got this master setting up a promise. Uh, and scheduling out a time that these servants will be holding him accountable to. So that tells us something about God. We can uh, hold God accountable. Two, these people knew in advance, right? They had the comfort of, oh, I know I've got my appointed time. Mm -hmm. And so when they saw uh, the owner of the field talking with the other servant, I'm like, well, that's their time. Now I'm going to get my time next, right? And I think that happens a lot in the um, economy of, of salvation, right? How we all, we don't all get the same things at the same time. Mm-hmm. And now I'm not saying that to justify injustice, of course, but what I'm saying is we shouldn't force everyone to have everything at the same time, right? Like, Derek, you're gonna get married on this time schedule. You're gonna go, you're gonna serve a mission, you're gonna get your eagle, you're gonna marry a woman in the temple, you're gonna, I didn't do any of that, (laughs) right? Right? I think God meets people where they are on their time frame. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't box people into, it all has to look the same. And I'm not sure exactly what to make of this parable, but it seems to me that there's something individual and personal about each hour. Because why didn't he just say, hey everyone, let's all get together, I'll spend one hour with all of you at the same time and I'll say the Mm -hmm. same thing to all of you, we can just all chill together. Mm -hmm. That's not what he does. Because there's gotta be something different about the first hour and the needs there than the second hour and the needs there. Otherwise, he could have just seen them all at the same time. He could have. So because of that, there's something individual and personable, personal about each of those relationships. I want to quote from Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 32, where he is disputing um, the resurrection and eternal life, and he quotes from Exodus 3, 6 that says, 
I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, what do we make of the fact that the word God is repeated three times? It doesn't say, well, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says God three times. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And what I take from that, and others have seen this before, um, and this is a standard rabbinic approach to this verse too, is to say that God's relationship with Abraham was not the same as God's relationship with Isaac mm. and not the same as God's relationship with Jacob. It's mm. a different God in mm -hmm. a sense, at least subjectively. They each experienced God differently mm -hmm. and it's named three times. And I think the same thing is true for God here. We've got this mm -hmm. cookie cutter plan of salvation that's not actually in our sources, it's in our culture though. Mm -hmm that should get blown away by a parable like this. Something I want to add to that real quick is something that I've really enjoyed in listening, listening to uh, Reverend Dr. Fatima preach is how she makes an effort to address God differently every time she addresses mm -hmm, him directly. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, when talking about um, you know, the plight of the black woman in America, she might talk about the God of Hagar, mm -hmm. you know, being that Hagar was a woman of color who was put out mm -hmm. and, you know, with, you know, her child or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and who, enslaved. Is, and yeah. enslaved, mm -hmm. like all of that. Just the thing is making, addressing the God of Jacob or the God, God of Isaac or the God of Abraham is a great way to add some specificity to that particular relationship in a way that the reader or the way that the listener can identify with, which mm -hmm. is something that I've tried to, you know, implement into my own life is trying to acknowledge God who does such and such or the God of this person to mm -hmm. further identify the God that I worship because of a relationship that God right. has with another person in history or an act that God has done in the past. So I really like this idea that, you know, separating this God of Abraham, this God of Isaac, this God of Jacob, and further this parable, which seems to validate that this God who gives these different individuals an hour of their own, a time of their own, an individualized relationship of their own, I do think there's something to be said there for a God that uh, works one-on-one -on -one with folks and a God that has a season for these different folks. And I want to connect this to this concept of general conference. And the word general is very, very important when we talk about general conference because of what it doesn't do. General conference literally cannot do this. What the master does in this parable is literally ungeneral because what would be general is the uh, going to all 12 of them and saying, we're all gonna get together for the same hour and I'm gonna talk to all of you at the same time. That's general conference. This is individual conference, what the master does here. And so we can't have unrealistic expectations of general conference. It's not gonna speak to everyone according to their needs. It literally is given to 16 million people. It's not gonna be right for everyone. It's not mm -hmm. gonna be detailed or comprehensive for everyone. Mm -hmm. It's not gonna be individualized. It's not gonna cover the exceptions. You literally can't. Mm -hmm. Like even if I talked for five hours, I still wouldn't even begin <laughs> to, to like cover everything I need to cover. So why do we think general conference? It's look, it's called general. It doesn't get specific. It doesn't it doesn't have the same thing as what we get in this parable from God, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to supplement general conference with our own individual conference with God. We've got to separate supplement general authorities with our own individual authority. And Derek and I love general conference by the way. Got to like put that out there. We just acknowledge that there's not enough jokes, though. <laughs> no, there's not enough jokes for Derek. I get yeah. all the jokes I need. <laughs> so Derek supplements the jokes I don't get at general no. conference. So I'm usually good on jokes okay. at general conference. Well, speaking of individual authority, I want to move on to verse 77 through 80. And this is I'm just going to paraphrase what we've got here. So we've got a new, another commandment that we should teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. Notice the reciprocal and mutual relationship of this, teach one another. So we're supposed to teach diligently um, so that we can be more in, uh, perfect 
Lee instructed in theory, principle, and doctrine. In verse 78, in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand. Verse 79, of things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth. Things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass. Things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations, and the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge mm. also of countries and kingdoms. Mm. The gospel that we're supposed to teach each other is comprehensive. It covers um, astronomy, things in heaven. It covers biology, things on the earth. It covers geology, things under the earth. It covers history, things which have been. It covers economics and political science, things which are, things which are at home, which are abroad. And it definitely covers critical race theory, right? Because <laughs> we come back to it. Yeah, definitely talk about the perplexities of the nations. Yeah, yeah. Colonialism, um, the history of, and uh, the history of the effects of enslavement and Jim Crow mm -hmm. and the new Jim Crow and whatever the next Jim Crow, because you know there's going to be it's another. Gonna be something there's going to be another Jim there's Crow. There's going to right? be another it's, metamorphosis. It's be. But anyway, my point is, when people say, "Oh no, you shouldn't talk about that in church. You should just talk about the gospel." Well, hello, the gospel is comprehensive. This is literally the gospel. If you read the New Testament, and Esau Macaulay's going to go here, but the New Testament talks about if you truly have Jesus of Lord of your life. Jesus will be the Lord of your whole life, and it will touch everything. It will touch how you eat, how you have sex, how you um, pay taxes, how you uh, navigate the legal system, how you, like, everything gets touched by this. Can um, we actually say what you said in the context of the following verse that comes right after it? Because I think that's important. Oh, yeah. Here. So here's what it says, verse 80, that ye may be prepared. Okay, yeah, we talk well, about the teaching, yes, yes. teaching all these things, the comprehensive teaching that we're supposed to teach one another. Uh -huh. Notice it's not like all spoon-fed to you from an authority. It's yeah. we teach each other these things. Right. We all, right. from top to bottom in the church, we all can learn from one another. And later on in the verse, or later on in the section, it's going to tell us how else we learn. It's going right. to tell us to seek things out of the best books. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to discuss that now. Yeah, we're going to, okay. I'll get to that. We'll get to that, okay. So verse 80, so we teach each other all of these things, that ye may be prepared in all things, when uh -huh. I shall send you again to magnify the calling whereunto I have called you, mm -hmm. and the mission with which I have commissioned mm -hmm. you. So we can't do our calling, we can't yep. do our mission without yep. knowing um, queer theory or critical race mm -hmm. theory or mm -hmm. um, any of these other things that involve a critical and analytical engagement of things at home and things abroad, things in heaven, things in earth. How many times have I said, like either online or to you, about how much we should teach missionaries about race in the MTC? Like when, right. we, when I was in the MTC, I had to at least learn some of the history of South Africa before I went there because... It's different over there. Right. Like, there are ways to be better mannered. There are, like, we had to learn how to be culturally sensitive to them down there because they're just not us. They're not American. So, like, I didn't have to learn a language or anything, but I did have to learn a little bit about what happened yeah, in that country so yeah. I could be better equipped to, you know, do that. Why don't we do that here as if we don't live in different Americas, as if black Americans don't experience things differently from mm -hmm. the majority mm -hmm. of church membership, a majority of these young men that we send to those neighborhoods and expect them and just turn them loose and expect them to be okay. There is a context to what we're doing as a white church going into black neighborhoods and preaching the gospel to them. There's a context to, you know, how Jesus Christ operates in white people's lives versus black people's lives. There is like, right. this is what I wish we went over in the MTC. And I see this validated here in verse 79. We're supposed to learn these things. We're supposed to teach each other these things because this has a direct effect on the quality of our ministry. This has a direct effect on our ability to what it says here, to magnify the calling whereunto the Lord has called us and the mission to which we've been commissioned. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to bring this into dialogue with what Esau McCulley said. Oh, yeah. What did he say? So he's an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and he's the author of Reading While Black, 
African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. And I should say, just so people know, he is relatively theologically conservative. He's coming from an evangelical Anglican background, but which I think is good because what I'm saying is even theological conservatives can can totally get behind what you need to do with race. This mm-hmm. should be something that people from all across the spectrum agree on. Mm-hmm. So here's what he says. The church had an opportunity to lead in this area and show the world how our faith allows us to press for better treatment for all. Instead, some decided to litigate the validity of critical race theory. With black and Asian blood drying on the concrete streets of American cities, some decided to debate the existence of systemic racism. Let me just pause Esau right here and say, we get this in the church, in our church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like people want to say, hey, all lives matter, or Mm -hmm. hey, the gospel is colorblind, or hey, why are you talking about race? That's racist if you you mention race. Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to uh, what Esau Macaulay says. They did not look at the thing itself. Instead, the thing itself became the occasion for a tired dispute. That debate revealed how portions of the church were ill and in need of healing well before the airborne contagion made its way to these shores. These sick parts of the body of Christ told us to just preach the gospel. Mm -hmm. There are very few things more harmful for for Christian cooperation than the weaponization of the gospel against black and brown cries for justice. That is sick, bro. Only in the context of racial injustice are we told to articulate the plan of salvation exclusively. Hmm. When marriages are struggling, we don't just preach the gospel to couples. We give them practical tools to love one another better. When parents are looking for clues on how to raise children, we do not simply preach the gospel. We give them Bible-informed tools to parent well. As all of Paul's letters make clear, Christian discipleship is about showing how the implications of the gospel spread out in a thousand directions. In the same way, we must show our people how the Christian faith makes a difference in how we respond to the suffering of the world. To do otherwise is a failure of discipleship. Close quote. What do you think of that? Dr. McCauley really spoke a whole word there, and I really appreciate what he had to say there because it validates, you know, first of all, a lot of what we've said here and, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do with this, um, you know, with this little project of ours. But basically just this idea that the gospel does give us the tools to, like, speak to these things and also the fact that the gospel can be a source through which we build tools that allow us to address these things is not something we really do enough in the church when it comes to things like racism. We we have gospel-informed tools on parenting, like, you know, Dr. McCauley says, we have gospel-informed tools for marriage. Like, we have mm. at least 10 manuals Yeah, we've got all these, these addiction recovery things. Yes. We've got the financial self-reliance yes. stuff. Yeah, like, we got provident living. We have all the safely gathered in. We got all of that, you know, but we don't have a gospel-informed manual on addressing racism as urgent, as important as that has been. We don't have one on, you know, affirming our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. We don't have one on, you know, creating Mm -hmm. and establishing a more egalitarian uh, ministry with Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. You know, just there are so many more urgent and important things that need addressing that we don't have gospel-informed tools The church still has something to gain from white supremacy, from patriarchy, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. from homophobia. And at the root of it, that is why those tools do not exist. And that is why we feel threatened when people try to bring discussions of the gospel into discussions on addressing attitudes and actions of prejudice. And you'll notice that for all the conversation, for all of the statements that the church has come out with in the last you know, year and a half, two years about abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice, what policy, what strategy specifically has the church come out with in that time to help us address these things? How quickly have we been to address racism and other forms of bigotry, you know, in the world and in the church since the church has said those things? We, we, we just have, we have work. We have a lot of work to do 
because it's one thing to you know say the words and to say the gospel has the solutions but we got to turn we got to turn the gospel into some effective tools some specific strategy and policy for addressing this stuff so anyway you asked me about you know what i thought about Esau Macaulay's words i agree with them and i want to see them applied more broadly or more specifically uh to to the church i think we definitely could use some gospel-centered tools uh for addressing yeah, racism and, and other prejudices it's so amazing the way he pointed it out that that for all these other issues we let the gospel have its full effect like i imagine that there's gospel you know people apply the gospel to their multi-level multi-level essential oil business right <laughs> like people will put that and make that a gospel issue right. so why can't we bring the gospel to bear for black lives matter mm-hmm. people that that's the only time at least according to Esau McCulley that's the only time where we just say oh just preach the gospel the, the colorblind gospel with nothing having to do with race and that's all you need and mm-hmm. Jesus will fix everything yeah well and it yeah I mean like don't talk about race just talk about Jesus and I see that with LGBT stuff too like yeah just certainly don't mention that you're gay just talk about Jesus and or or economic injustice don't talk about poverty talk about Jesus you know what Jesus talked about yeah what did he, he talk talked about, about poverty mm-hmm. he condemned mm-hmm. economic injustice mm-hmm. I think he was specific in all of the Bible, you have 2,000 references to poverty and economic injustice. Mm-hmm. 2,000. We do not even have one example in, this, in the Bible that, that identifies a specific same-gender loving couple, holds them up for you to look at, and then condemns them. Mm-hmm. We've got some ambiguous verses here and there that we can't we don't know how to apply them to the contemporary time. We don't know exactly what they meant in their time. We don't know exactly what they were referring to. But we don't have once a same-gender, loving, lifelong committed couple who are held up to view and then condemned. It would be different if Paul got a letter from the Corinthians saying, hey, we've got you know Alexander and Philip, they're this gay couple and they're exactly like a straight couple except they're two dudes, what do we do? Then and only then would you have any right to speak to my people on the basis of the Bible, mm-hmm. right? We do, do not have our modern questions answered anywhere by the Bible. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so let me go back to um, I think that's all I had to say about this section, and we can go on to the best books, which I think is is quite relevant. Certainly. So this is what verse 118 says, and this is one of the verses that I loved um, before I became a member of the church. This is one of the things that as I was investigating the church, I'm like, yeah, if they live into this, then they're not a cult. Mm. If they live into this, then it's not a mind control place. It is a place of free inquiry. It is a place of, um, it's not a place of anti-intellectualism. It is a place for intellectuals. Anyway, so verse 118 says, And as all, and as all have not faith, seek ye diligently, and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study and also by faith. So there's two components to gospel learning. There's the study where you have to study it out in your mind, mm-hmm. and then there's the faith piece, and we're supposed to seek learning on both. It's kind of like if you've got two skis, if one ski gets farther than the other, you've got a big problem, mm-hmm. right? You need to stay on both skis and keep them together or else you're gonna do these weird splits and that's not what we wanna do. Right. Uh, we've got to study uh, even uh, we've got to learn by study and by faith. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about best books. So this was given in um, a December of 1832 and January of 1833. What what were the best books? The only Latter Day Saint book that was published at this time was the Book of Mormon. We haven't had the Book of Commandments yet. We haven't had the Doctrine and Covenants yet, of course. Uh, we've got some revelations circulating in manuscript form, but we don't have any LDS books. This this isn't talking about when it says best books. It's not talking about Deseret books. <laughs> we don't even have Deseret books yet. Mm-hmm. 
I don't even think it's talking about the Bible and the Book of Mormon, even though those are good books. Mm-hmm you would have seen scriptures there, you would have seen the Bible and Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. because when we talk about the Book of Mormon in the DNC, it actually names it by name. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say that, it says best books, which I can only conclude to mean it's the best books that are outside the LDS tradition, mm-hmm. outside the Bible, outside the Book of Mormon, outside the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And it even says that at the beginning of this verse, it says, and as all have not faith. I think that's an important thing to note simply because the Lord seems to be making space for people that don't necessarily mm-hmm. have it within them to, you know, have faith like everybody else. And I think a lot of people have been this person at some point in their life, where whether they have had faith at one point and then had a, you know, faith crisis, or if they're just not somebody who's naturally inclined to just be faithful. I think the Lord is validating them here and right. saying that if you, not everybody has faith, so, you know, I'm going to make sure that my servants can talk to you and seek diligently out of the, and teach out of the best books, teach wisdom, right. you know, do all that other stuff. I think the Lord is making space for the people who, you know, would prefer to put um, their faith, quote unquote, in things like science and things like rationalism. I, I feel like the Lord is telling us to get hip to that stuff so that we can talk to these folks right. because not everybody has that kind of faith. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the connection there is if you do the learning right, it will actually support faith. Yes. Because it's saying that the remedy for not having faith isn't you you bully people and beat them up. It's Mm -hmm. you provide them solid, grounded, academically rigorous foundations for belief. Mm -hmm. I think there's this idea that, oh, you just, faith is in conflict with actual scholarly work. I'm like, no. Scholarly work with the right expectations supports and builds faith. And I'm not talking mm-hmm. about in an apologetic sense. I'm talking right. about scholarly work gives you the right expectations for the gospel mm-hmm. so that you don't layer on, uh, kind of like what Patrick Mason said about we've loaded the truth cart with way too many things in the church. We have piled in all of these extra claims and extra things that aren't actually part of the gospel. And that sets people up for failure when they realize that a lot of that narrative is no longer uh, able to be maintained. Mm -hmm. But if you study out of the best books, then you will be prepared. You will have a resilient and durable faith that can Mm -hmm. handle complexity and change and nuance. It's basically option three. Mm -hmm. Right here, we're setting people up for option three by giving them the tools to retell the narrative, and that will help preserve and build faith. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about last week, we compared the philosophies of men mingled with scripture to yeah. likening the scriptures unto yourselves. And I was saying, one of them is just a nasty way of looking at what we're doing. The other is a positive way of looking at what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing is true here. You could say, oh, if you're reading out of the best books that aren't LDS, you're mingling the philosophies of men with scripture. I'm like, if you're being mean, you can say that. <laughs> but if you're being spirit-infused, uh, you're going to say, look, they're studying um, out of the best books, and they're learning by study and by faith, which could mean the philosophies of man and the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I try to bring in all these extra theologians because this is the best books. And I think many of our listeners have heard the same lessons for 40 years, and then when they listen to us, they actually find life-giving and powerful ways of preserving and building faith. And the reason those things are so cool is because of the extra outside sources that we bring in, Mm -hmm. whether it's from the Talmud, whether it's from uh, other... theologians in other christian traditions or it's the convert Derek knox no thank you you. i'm just saying Derek. like one of the most nifty things about having converts is you know having people from other faith traditions that bring in you know these ways of looking at the text that are Uh valid and we're just not conditioned to or we're just so conditioned to look at the text as you said the same way for the last for our entire lives but then when we get these opportunities to experience the gospel as other people live it, you know, that adds something new to our lives. And it's and it's wonderful. It's powerful. One of the most powerful mm-hmm. times for the church 
um, you know, in a time where they were experiencing their first bout of apostasy and rebellion within the church is when, you know, the saints went on missions and brought in yeah, all these new converts. Yeah. Like, that was a real life-giving time for the church. And the fact that it was fueled by so many new converts, at least two of which became, you know, prophets later on, um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think there's definitely merit to what you were saying, Derek. So, all of our prophets up until uh, Joseph F. Smith were converts. Hmm. I think Joseph F. Smith was the first president of the church that was raised in the church. Ain't that nothing. So, we've got uh, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, then Lorenzo Snow. There's a song that I don't know. It's Wilford Woodruff, I think, is the fourth. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, then there's... Brigham, then Taylor, then Woodruff, yeah. then Snow. And then... Is, is there a song? <laughs> yeah, there's a song that I don't know, because I didn't go to primary. That's right. I don't I don't know this song either. I don't think I ever learned this song. Okay, let me, let me determine this. Taylor, Woodruff, Snow. Yeah, then Joseph F. Smith. Yeah. And Joseph F. Smith was the son of uh, Hiram. Right. And so he was very young but raised in the church. Um, and he was, I think, six years old when his father and uncle uh, were martyred. Mm. So he was the first one that was raised. And everyone else was a convert, mm. right? Think about what Brigham... Uh, well, don't think about what Brigham brought into the church. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but think about like what Joseph brought, what Brigham brought, what what all of these early leaders brought. Um, it, was, it was because they're converts. Mm -hmm. And I want to connect this again with uh, verse 122 and 123. And we again see the egalitarian nature of this teaching authority in the church. It says, uh -huh. appoint among yourselves a teacher. We've got this democratic principle going on here. It says, appoint among yourselves a teacher, and let not all be spokesmen at once, but let one speak at a time, and let all listen to unto his sayings, that when all have spoken, that all may be edified of all, and that every man may have an equal privilege. So notice, we're supposed to let everyone speak, and everyone is supposed to listen to everyone speak, and we're supposed to speak one at a time. Mm. And the purpose of that is, we're not complete. The body of Christ is missing if we don't all have a say. And then I love how it connects with verse 123. See that ye love one another, cease to be covetous, learn to impart one to another as the gospel requires. So mm -hmm. love is the center of everything we do. Mm -hmm. It's the beginning and the end. That's, that's really all it is. Mm -hmm. And look how it leaves what we are to impart one to another. It leaves that... It doesn't specify what that is to be, but it does say as the gospel requires. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are so many things that the gospel requires that we impart to one. Like love is one of those things, obviously. Equity, make sure everybody gets, you know, what they need. Um, we just read about privileges. There's just a lot of things here that we could read into this because ultimately the gospel requires that we give people what they need in order to thrive, in order to survive, and in order to, I think as we spoke two or three weeks ago, make sure they have what they need uh, to multiply their talents a hundred times. Mm. So if that's equality, yeah. give that to them. If that's privilege, give that to them. If that's something as basic as food or economic stability, give that to them. Like that's our duty. Mm -hmm. That is what the gospel mm -hmm. requires of us. And that's what we learn from uh, in liberation theology, what's called integral salvation, meaning wholeness. You can't just care about the soul. Like, you have to care about body and soul. You have to care about the whole person, or else your, your, your religion is worthless. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the consistent message throughout the New Testament is... Mm -hmm. Love changes how we treat one another. Faith changes how God's reign gets implemented here on, on, on this earth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That is a good place to wrap up. 
So before we go ahead and do so, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by going to by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. And you can also search for us on Facebook. Events for this week, Derek, you want to let the folks know about the book club? Yeah, so the book club is continuing every Sunday. So look on our Facebook uh, for each week for the event. All right. Any other? Oh, event? and the book is Blair Osler's Queer Mormon Theology. We're reading one chapter every week. And we've been doing that at 8 p.m. for the last couple weeks? Yes, 8 p.m. Eastern on Sundays. Okay. Any other events? I know that affirmation thing is coming up. But is that a ways off? I think that's in September, but that's coming up. Oh, gosh, it might be October. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, August is upon us. It will be August by the time this lands. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't even remember the dates, but check out the Affirmation uh, Conference this year. It will be virtual and free. Virtual and free? Yeah. Snaps, okay. And there probably will be a track for church leaders they have a special curriculum designed for like, hey, I wanna, I'm a local leader and I want to do the right thing for LGBTQ folks, but I don't know what I'm doing. That's where you can go or send people. All right. Very cool. Well, then a quick special thanks to uh, the folks that have been helping us behind the scenes, uh, you know, making sure our content is out there and accessible to folks, to uh, Tamara for making us sound good, doing our audio editing, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, and also everybody who's been helping extract uh, their favorite sound bites from the episode so we can throw those up on our social media channels. We really mm -hmm. appreciate y'all and the new collaborators that have joined us this past little while as well. If you guys are interested in joining the collaborator community, or if you're interested in supporting the show in any way, um, you can go. You can support us directly by going to glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. And you can uh, support us on a monthly or on a one-time basis. And along with that, join our collaborator community where, you know, you can chat more directly with Derek and I. And also, you know, just talk in the community about things we can do to, I guess, expand the mission of beyond the block with what we're trying to do we, we got some ideas that we've been discussing in there that i'm kind of excited about but you know as they come closer to actualization mm -hmm. then we'll talk a little bit more about them right derek right it's like my new stand-up comedy <laughs> no yes no i'm gonna start a new we are not funding podcast. this yes we are new, not yes. funding this <laughs> it's gonna be called beyond beyond the block jokes with derek <laughs> No, yes. we do not need this. <laughs> we get thing number one out of the way and thing number two, thing number one and thing number two, then I will be the first person <laughs> to help you out with this special. But those first two things we've been talking about, once those two are done, okay, fine. we can do the comedy special. Awesome. And even then, the comedy special, 15 minutes tops. Oh. 15 minutes. You don't need a 45 yet. Oh. Got to need a solid set. Anyway. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah. Till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone. <laughs>